Hello everyone and welcome back to the AirPod, your favourite place for all the latest goings on with the British royal family. I'm your host, Omid Scobie, joined by my beautiful, my wonderful, vibrant co-host, <laughs> Maggie Rubin. I like it, keep it coming, keep them coming. <laughs> well, you, you're, you are, I think, throughout the, the ABC Bureau here and just generally, wherever you go, you are the kind of burst of energy that I think everyone needs in their day. <laughs> Especially on a Friday <laughs> afternoon when I, I think many of us are wilting We're trying. You know, Omen, I'm trying today. I have to say, anyone in the UK knows it is a rainy day. It's supposed to be a rainy weekend. Winter is coming. But I feel like, you know, we can still bring the sunshine here on this podcast. Right, Omid? We can, we can. And I think, <laughs> you know, the rain has certainly not stopped the royal family from keeping going with all of their work this week. In fact, we've had another overseas visit for yeah. Prince Charles and the Camilla, Camilla, the Duchess of Cornwall, which we'll get into very shortly. Uh, William and Kate were both really busy. Kate was out on engagements, including taking on an important role with the Scouts Association and roasting marshmallows. Um, I'm going to ask and you a question. Here's about a that tease. Shortly. They interviewed who I think um, wins the week in royal news. We'll tell you who it is later. Oh, wow. They're snuggly. They're cute. Yeah, world exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll be hopping over across the pond to catch up with the Sussexes, who uh, this week marked the start of Black History Month in Britain with a focus on the country's need to build a more representative and inclusive society. Megan also spoke at the Fortune Most Powerful Women Summit, uh, hitting back some of the criticism that she had received over her comments or her encouragement on people to vote. Uh, plus, we'll be looking at all the latest royal news and headlines for the week. But Maggie, this was a trip that you and I were not on, unfortunately. It would have been quite nice to get away, <laughs> but my, my invite got lost in the post somewhere. Mine did too. How did that happen? <laughs> we saw. We should tell them. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll send a note over to Clarence House. Um, but we did see Prince Charles and Camilla, the Duchess of Cornwall, make a surprise visit to Northern Ireland this week. It was a one-day visit, but saw uh, then become the second royal to hop on a plane and head overseas for royal engagements. This was a trip to mark or to thank those who had supported the country throughout the crisis. Obviously comes just weeks after William visited Belfast to mark emergency services day um i think what's always great with charles and camilla is you kind of know what you're going to get when they're away mm. on a trip there are certain boxes that they'd like to tick and this is sort of a more uh, i guess traditional lineup of royal engagements we saw the couple thanking frontline workers who had supported the people of northern ireland throughout the pandemic and of course charles visited a food and grocery distributor uh, to recognize their efforts during the pandemic um, because of course that was a time we saw everyone rush out and empty the shelves yeah. in supermarkets and uh, this uh, was an organization that kept everyone fed throughout the difficult times and of course camilla uh, met with a domestic abuse charity in the uk and which also works uh, in northern ireland um, to, to hear more about those affected by domestic violence because sadly the numbers have risen considerably mm. in parts of the country and i'd imagine around the world uh, through what has been a very difficult time you make a good point. This was just a solid royal trip. They did important work. They they hit all those big topics that they care about. Uh, the other headline I kept seeing out of this tour, which apparently we're still kind of counting and caring about this, but I guess it was the first time we had seen Charles in a face mask in public. So oh, right. yeah, I don't know. There's a little nugget for you. Do what you will with that information. <laughs> <laughs> what I found even more interesting. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. 
No, I was going to say Charles has become sort of the uh, ambassador for the coronavirus in the well, world, yeah, being yeah, the only exactly. one that had uh, been affected by it. Um, so t- I think it was actually quite interesting to see him in a mask this week because I think he had probably been the one that had been up until this point the most careful about shielding himself, mm-hmm. having already gone through those symptoms one time around. That's what I was about to say. The same thing is that, you know, we, we know that Charles already went through coronavirus. He was really one of the first high-profile people, and we all were very worried considering his age. He's, you know, very a high-risk factor. Um, but what's interesting now is there's still so much unknown with this virus. So, yes, he's had it once, but we know there's instances of people catching it again. We don't know what the long-term you know, ramifications are of having the virus. So I think that for him it must still be very scary. And so to be back out there in the world when, you know, r- numbers are rising throughout Europe uh, it says something and so seeing him in a mask and still traveling but taking these precautions it ends up actually being I think a bigger deal than it may seem. Mm. And I think over the months ahead we will see more members of the royal family uh, sort of taking on overseas visits even if they are uh, just for the day I, I think mm-hmm. it'll be a while before we see a full-blown royal tour I can't imagine there's anything in the diary uh, right now Mm. even in 2021 as as the future is so uncertain right now and speaking of that that's exactly why Buckingham Palace announced this week uh, that Windsor Castle and BP uh, won't be holding any events Mm. for the rest of 2020 and possibly early 2021 we saw them post an update on the wall I know I know. We saw them post an update on the Royal Family website uh, announcing that in line with government guidelines and as sensible precaution, uh, there'll be no large scale events held at Buckingham Palace or Windsor Castle the rest of the year. Uh, So that includes um, investitures, that includes uh, some of the sort of more ceremonial events. Of course, we did see the Queen conferring a knighthood on Captain Sir Thomas More at Windsor Castle a couple of months ago but that really was a sort of one-off as uh, I guess a a legend of this pandemic Um, (laughs) he needed to be recognized uh, promptly Um, but I think it was unlikely that we'll see anything else take place at any of the palaces for some time and 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 that's a shame because that's what sort of keeps this beat going you know I think in terms of the Queen having visibility during this time there are very few opportunities I think when I saw that announcement come across, it was sort of no surprise. And in one hand, it was like, well, obviously, they're not going to have events the rest of this year. But seeing it in writing and having it be official, it was... I don't know, just a kind of a, a moment of sadness when you realize that uh, this is going to go on for quite some time and that the last thing to come back are going to be these sort of big events that Buckingham Palace is known for. Mm. And whilst there will still be certain key events taking place this year, such as Remembrance Sunday service uh, that will take place um, at the Cenotaph in London on November 8th, um, we have seen reports that Prince Andrew won't be included in any of Mm. the commemorations um, and is unlikely to after the Jeffrey Epstein scandal. Um, There were some concerns, I think, from many royal watchers that Andrew would somehow slip into these activities. He's obviously been a part of it in the past, but um, a source told The Sun um, that there had been behind the scenes agonising over the issue, but the matter Mm -hmm. was sorted out after it was decided that the Queen and Prince of Wales will lead the tributes in a much further pared down event than we expected. 
Oh, interesting that there's still so much thought and angst going into those decisions right now. Unsurprisingly as well, when you think of how many unresolved issues there are surrounding the Duke of York at the moment. Um, Yeah, it's true. You kind of forget, you know, obviously there's so much other news happening in the world um, that that's not unresolved. We haven't gotten sort of to the bottom or any type of satisfying resolution uh, to that story. But there's just so much other stuff happening in the world that, you know, it's kind of been pushed to the back burner. But um, clearly it's still very important. And I think I I hope that um, they'll be a sort of renewed push to, to get answers. Yeah, I have heard that there may be um, some sort of updates uh, mm. headed our way later this month. So we'll certainly be on the lookout of that. We'll share it with you guys yeah. when we hear. On to more positive news. Um, oh, good. Maggie, like you, you were kind of, well, you were tickled by this one. <laughs> William and Kate back on the Zoom calls, but albeit oh, yes. with a slight difference this time. Guys, this was my tease, my furry tease. Go for it, Omen. Give him the punchline. <laughs> well, we saw the Duke and Duchess <laughs> of Cambridge welcoming a very special guest to their video call this week when they caught up with Australian business owners and first responders discussing the aftermath of the January wildfires. And during one of the calls, they caught up with a rather cute marsupial, a koala <laughs> named Grace. <laughs> Aww. It was great. It was great. I mean, that's how you win at Zoom, right? You bring a cute furry animal as a guest. Exactly. And it was cute to see William and Kate cooing over uh, the the, the koala. She'd actually been taken into care. Um, They were actually on this particular call speaking with residents of Kangaroo Island in South Mm. Australia, where the number of deaths and injuries to koalas, I think, were up in the sort of 60 to 80,000 region so a really difficult time for for all animals but particularly um koalas um kangaroo island was 50 percent of it was affected by the bushfires uh, led to two deaths um human deaths and significant property damage um so this video call was really a chance for local business owners um, and first responders to share with the cambridges um, how they're attempting to rebuild their lives again um, an important one for us to pay attention to, because this was probably originally going to be, in fact, you and I were talking about this, uh, a, a tour yeah. or a visit of some kind. We had heard rumours earlier in the year that the Cambridges were planning to head over to Australia um, in some capacity. Um, and this seems to be the closest for now that they can get. Yeah, I know. I was really bummed that they weren't going to be able to turn this into a tour. If you remember, I was in Australia in January covering uh, these bushfires. And, you know, to see them up close, you just really saw how horrific they were. And the fact that Australia is part of the Commonwealth, I'm so happy that they're not forgetting about the fact that these fires happened in light of all the other really important news that's also going on. Uh, And the fact that they're probably going to happen again, you know, this upcoming winter. Fire seasons are getting worse and worse. And so uh, many people are looking again towards Australia, worried about what's going to happen. And you mentioned those koalas. You know, um, I got to meet some of the ones uh, that were affected and I'll never forget, you know, the researcher we met with um, just told me how scared she was about the future and the fact that they were losing so many animals and, you know, what that meant for the future of the species. So to, to, to hear that is so striking and, and, and very scary. And so, again, it's, it's just so great that, you know, 
I keep joking about how cute and cuddly the koala is, but they are. And so they make kind of good spokesperson to get people to care. And so William and Kate with a koala, it's like a trifecta. It is such a good way to get people to care and remind them about this really important topic. And, you know, Omid, one last thing about koalas, and then I promise I'll stop talking about my cute furry friends. But um, so I asked the researcher, you know, what, what is it about koalas? Because you said William and Kate were like cooing and ooing, and you, you see one, and you have like a physical, like a deep physical reaction to them. And uh, the researcher said they've actually studied it in humans, why humans care about koalas so much. And get this, it's because um, koalas, the, the dimensions and the ratio of their face to body and head to body mimics human babies. Oh, interesting. Isn't that you know, fast? I was, so there's, yeah, there's like an innate human response be, to them. I thought it might be tied to perhaps the shape or size of their heads because <laughs> I'm immediately attracted to any animal that has a huge head and big eyes. That's the cutest. That's the. Are aesthetic. you talking about Yoshi right now? You're talking about Yoshi. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I'm biased, but... <laughs> I think it was nice to see, you know, unfortunately, alongside the call, they did hear that the numbers of koalas on the island is now down to possibly as low as 5,000, which is Ugh, devastating yeah. to hear. Um, but despite that, I think it was nice to hear the Duke and Duchess express their appreciation for the Australian sort of sense of hope and togetherness that was shown throughout that time. Um, certainly on Kangaroo Island, that sort of sense of community is what got them through it. Uh, in fact, that was something that Prince William commented on before the call finished. Fantastic to hear the community spirit once again down in Australia, as always, which is what Catherine and I see when we come down there. You always feel the, the community spirit and Aussies are very good at looking after each other. And it's fantastic to see you all, you know, pulling together. And, and I'm really glad, you know, both Catherine and I are glad to hear that the support is there for you all as well. And as the Brigadier touched on, you know, the mental health implications as well as the financial implications and, and, and all this on, on everyone is, is going to take its toll for a while so i do hope all of you feel that you you've got that support you've got someone you can speak to you've got somewhere you can go and, and receive um support whether it's financial or whether it's um just having a chat um so please do look after yourselves and um hopefully catherine and i one day when the world goes back to whatever kind of normality we have in the future um we can come and visit you all and, and come and see kangaroo island for ourselves that wasn't the only time we saw the Cambridges this week. Uh, we saw the Duchess of Cambridge take on a brand new role, um, but with an organisation that she was already very familiar with, appointed uh, as the joint president of the Scout Association. Now, this was interesting because it was an appointment alongside another unlikely member of the royal family, the Duke of Kent, who we don't often see on engagements, um, but this uh, visit that Kate made to the Scouts Association in West London this week saw the two appear together for the visit. Um, but I think out of the two of them, it was Kate that really looked the part. She had her scout vest on. She had the, I don't know what it's called, is it a neckerchief? There must be... <laughs> <laughs> there must be a word for that. Yeah. I don't know, <laughs> a sporty handkerchief around the neck. It's like a camping handkerchief, right? She, she's good with the outdoor looks. I mean, Kate's really been a champion of outdoor well-being and uh, childhood development and the outdoors and how they sort of play this vital hand-in-hand -hand role together. So it's, it's a sort of natural fit, I think, to see her take on this role. Um, but I actually asked you this earlier, but I want to ask you again. Scouts in the US, is it the same thing or is it a different thing? 
Well, so we have scouts in the U.S. We have Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, and they're they're kind of always changing and evolving with you know being coming more inclusive and and mm-hmm. what that means. But there's definitely different levels, and I know it's focused on being outdoorsy often. I actually did both growing up, which is really. <laughs> bizarre thing but my mom was like a group leader of both and she had to take me to each one because my older brother was doing it so I don't know I had a car in like the boxcar derby or whatever it's called with all of the boy scouts and then I remember collecting badges with my girl scouts do you remember which which badges you got oh gosh I don't know probably one for like talking a lot and (laughs) activities outdoors those were always things I excelled in (laughs) I wasn't allowed to do these sorts of things why I think my mum has trust issues (laughs) with 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 the wider world um and her children okay this is a plea for everyone all all of Omid's fans listening let's send him um what badges he would have earned based on all the great skills he has in life so reach out send him what badges you think he would earn um I feel like you're a great you're a great caretaker to Yoshi that's a good badge for you that's stuff they teach you in scouts I'm good at serving the tea. I think hot. <laughs> you know, that probably is something the British scouts have. I don't know if tea service is one that we have in the States, Omid. <laughs> uh, Kate actually got an award at her engagement. She was presented with the Silver Wolf Award, which is the highest oh. award honoured by the Scout Association. And that was good to highlight her, her dedication. Um, she, of course, oh, has volunteered sweet. over the years. We saw her last year visit one of the headquarters for the Scouts Association. And even, I think it was eight or nine years ago, Kate was uh, volunteering with the Scouts on Anglesey when she lived there with Mm. Prince William after they had gotten married. So this has really been uh, a part of her life for quite some time um, and certainly a fitting engagement. I saw her toasting marshmallows in some of the pictures. Have we talked about the marshmallows yet? Let's talk more about these because I have a question for, well, everyone, but especially Omid. I want to know, so do people toast marshmallows here in England? We toast them, but we generally just eat them. No, well, that's the thing. S'mores are known here, but the tradition here is really just toasting marshmallows. This is the saddest thing I've ever heard. I feel so bad for British people. We don't have graham crackers that are the same as yours we have digestive mm. biscuits which are i guess similar but they're not yeah, but quite they're the same, the same. Uh, but listen I, I love a good s'more with the like one wedge <laughs> of chocolate like one cube yeah, of and chocolate then you, you kind of like heat yeah. up the chocolate a bit and toast the marshmallow all right we're gonna make them with digestives then wait what about so just marshmallows then are you someone that barely roasts do you like do you take your time are you patient and get that golden brown or do you just burn the heck out of it no i like i like it when it gets the sort of crispy skin around it you know skin's Interesting. are you patient word. then you like get it golden <laughs> yeah. um, i usually have like two on the go so okay. if you have them cooking at different times <laughs> we're gonna go really in the weeds wait what did kate do do we have this documented how did she roast her marshmallow Unfortunately, her marshmallow is very raw in the photo that I. Can oh, see. Kate! Oh my gosh! You know, I, I'm wow. I don't want to say it, but I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed. <laughs> well, all right. Well, whilst we go and discuss marshmallow tips, we're going to take a break. You think I should um, reach out and tell her I can offer lessons? Be like, listen, one American to a British. Like, I've made a s'more or two. Call me. I'll help a girl out. Maybe well, I should that, do that. Just be on that note. Um, I will leave you to write your your letter to Kensington Palace and we'll be back after the break. If you're listening, Kensington Palace, feel free to reach out. I give marshmallow toasting lessons. 
All right. Well, why don't we head over to your side of the pond, even though you're on my side, Maggie, <laughs> uh, and check in with <laughs> the Sussexes. I'll represent it. <laughs> I feel like this is now a feature. It's sort of checking in with the Sussexes on a <laughs> weekly basis. Um, they, 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 you know, of course, they're still working members of the royal family, uh, albeit not working for the royal family. They're working for themselves, um, but doing great work. And I thought it was really nice this week to see them mark the start of Black History Month in Britain. Mm. Um, of course, with a focus on the country's need to build a more representative society. In fact, Harry and Meghan had strong words for the UK, uh, speaking to the Evening Standard, saying that it's time to end structural racism in the UK. I think you can only, um, we've talked about this before, you can only be what you can see. And I think you guys touched on it right at the beginning there, which is, you know, the UK is incredibly diverse and London especially is one of the, celebrated as one of the most diverse cities in the world. Yet if you actually get out on the streets and you actually talk to people, I think it is, it's not always as, as it doesn't feel as diverse as it actually is. And therefore now is, a, now is, the, is the best time for us to be able to use our platform compare uh join with uh, with your platform as well so that we can actually start a conversation and introduce people to, to to the black community that are making a massive difference within their own communities but across the uk uh, as a whole as well so i think it's 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 a it's a month of celebration and of course with with a lot of other things going on in the uk and america and around the world at the moment um there can be parallels or connections to that but essentially for us this is this is very much a celebration of, of Black History Month. Now, alongside their conversation with the paper, the couple also wrote an opinion piece. Um, this was actually alongside a list or a curated list of uh, trailblazers, Black History Month trailblazers that they had uh, helped uh, put together with the help of some of their closest friends and contacts within the world of uh, charity and arts and sports and so on. This includes uh, Vogue editor-in-chief or British Vogue editor-in-chief Edward Enninfall that picked um, one of the individuals himself. Um, but they had written in this opinion piece that for as long as structural racism exists, there'll be a generation of young people of color who do not start their lives with the same equality of opportunity as their white peers. And for as long as that continues, untapped potential will never be realized. But what was interesting about this, because this isn't the first time we've heard the Sussexes speaking about uh, the need for uh, racial equity or representation or a more, more diverse society or diverse range of opportunities for people of colour. Um, it was one of the first times we'd heard speak, Harry speak about his quote-unquote awakening on mm. this topic. Um, he had spoken, he said... Speaking to the newspaper, he described his own awakening to the lack of opportunities for people from black, Asian and minority ethnic communities since he met Megan in 2016. He said, I wasn't aware of so many issues and so many of the problems within the UK and also globally as well. I thought I did, but I didn't. And I think it was quite refreshing to hear Harry sort of speak on this as someone that was relatively new to the subject. I don't think he's sort of trying to fake a position of authority in this, um, which I'd love to hear your thoughts. I would imagine can be quite impactful to those that are also coming into this conversation from a fairly new place. I would imagine that there are many people engaging in this subject uh, since the sort of resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement this year, who perhaps hadn't thought about race issues in the same way before. 
Yeah, I think you make a really good point. And, and the, the part of that statement you just read that really hit home for me is when he says, I thought I did, but I didn't. And for me, it's sort of him acknowledging, uh, you know, sometimes you think you know about something, but you really haven't given it much thought or you haven't been personally impacted by it or you haven't sort of seen the truth. And he's acknowledging that while maybe he thought he was trying before, you know, he maybe really wasn't. And it wasn't until a member of his own family, his wife, sort of opened up his eyes and he, he saw how systemic racism was affecting his own family, potentially, you know, the future of his of his new child, that it really opened up his eyes. And, you know, he even went on um, talking about not uh, pointing the finger, saying this isn't about blame, but it's about learning. And so I think those two statements are really what drove home for me, the fact that hopefully this could be just an open conversation, an honest conversation, something that hopefully, again, is more authentic and genuine. It's not about pretending that, you know, you're holier than thou and have never made a mistake and uh, are, are perfect when it comes to this subject matter. Instead, it's acknowledging that we kind of probably have all made mistakes and done stupid things and been hypocritical in one way or the other. Maybe we didn't realize it, but, you know, if you kind of take ownership of that and, and say, I want to be a better person and I want to learn more and hopefully I'm better tomorrow than I am today, uh, then that's kind of what makes the world become actually a better place. Mm, absolutely. It was interesting to hear his own observations. This interview actually took place with two uh, young journalists from the Evening Standard. For those that don't know, Evening Standard is a London-based newspaper here in the UK and one that the, the Sussexes have had some relationship with in the past. Uh, Megan's work with the Hub Community Kitchen benefiting uh, victims of the Grenfell Tower fire um, is something that had really been championed by the paper. They spoke with journalists uh, Lizzie Edmonds and Abianka McConey, who's a Zimbabwean-born, London-raised journalist for the paper. She actually said that speaking to Megan was uh, not only an exciting experience, but great to speak to someone that shared a very similar childhood to her. She's obviously grown up in the UK and I'm sure would have uh, been very aware of some of the things that Megan dealt with uh, throughout her years growing up, but also during her time moving to the UK uh, and experiencing the great and the sort of difficult sides of uh, British society that still exist. Um, in that conversation, Harry sort of went on to reflect about uh, his own experiences of sort of discovering uh, where a lack of diversity exists. Uh, he spoke about going into a shop with your children and only seeing white dolls. He said, do you even think that's weird? There's not a black doll there. And he says, and I use that as just one example of where we see where we as white people don't always have the awareness of what it must be like for someone else of a different coloured skin, of a black skin, to be in the same situation as we are, where the world that we know has been created by white people for white people. And I think it's comments like these uh, that makes Harry a very welcome participant in the conversation, owning his own privilege, not being afraid to talk about uh, some of the sort of more difficult moments in history in the past. We'd heard him speak about uh, some of the sort of darker sides of the British Empire in the past um, when speaking to Queen's Commonwealth Trust leaders. Um, and I think it's exciting to see where the Sussexes are going with this conversation. Yeah, you know, I, I'm curious about that conversation and what reaction you've been seeing, especially here in, in Britain compared to even in the UK. I mean, what do you think, Oman, what has the reaction been like from, from whether it be the community or royal commentators about the fact that Harry and Meghan are being so open and talking to the standard about this kind of thing? I mean, I think in, in, in sort of the general wider society, this is exactly what we want to see members of the royal family doing. You know, 
we do live in a very mixed society at the moment and there are so many issues within that and uh, you know, to see Harry and Meghan not being afraid to take on some of those issues, I think is is very is a very welcome moment to many who have perhaps questioned in the past why members of the royal family hadn't engaged in conversation about the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, although I do understand there may be a few moments this month where they will uh, take part in some Black History Month related. Uh, engagements which will be interesting to see uh, but of course there are the naysayers we're very familiar with them Maggie uh, who feel that Mag uh, Harry and Meghan are not in a position to be telling the British Brits of this country what to do or what is wrong with this with their country when they are living in California in a luxury mansion. Personally, I don't see the connection. Harry's a British man, he's a member of the royal family, a member of Britain's oldest establishment, and Meghan is his wife. Uh, it makes, to me, it makes him perfectly qualified for the subject, but there are many who seem to disagree with that. Yeah, I think you make a good point. I mean, listen, no matter where you're living or who you are, these are good conversations for people to be having. And even if you have them just with friends around a dinner table and you know the world isn't listening, that's good. We should be talking more about how we can make the world a better place and treat people equally and change the system. Now they happen to be doing it obviously on a platform and um, hoping that it you know changes more minds. But at the end of the day, if you're living in California or the UK, again, these are conversations that we want and should be having around the world. And so uh, on one hand, I don't know. People will find things to criticize them about, no matter what. And this mm. is probably just another example. Exactly. I think it was it was interesting to hear their thoughts on not being in the UK through some of the sort of difficulties that this country has been through throughout the pandemic, and also not being able to work with the charities and organisations that they are usually so closely affiliated with. Um, it was interesting to hear their explanation to that, um, where Harry basically said that it's no difference at the moment. We're all talking over Zoom. You know, I think with COVID, my goodness, everyone has gotten accustomed to what it means to be distanced. Right, and so the impact of that, whether it's across the pond or it's across town, you're still, for the most part, through a computer screen. So I think we've all had to adapt to how we can have the most impact and influence as possible within the constraints of what's happened with um, COVID-19. So yeah. everything's been through, through video. Everything's been in, in a room somewhere. Yes. So actually, it doesn't matter where in the world uh, that we've been. We've, you know, we've we've stayed in touch and we've supported. Uh, the organizations that we've been affiliated with as much as humanly possible. You know, like all of you, we're doing the best that we can and um, and hoping that, you know, our passion and our commitment is still felt um, because it certainly hasn't wavered. You know, we were just talking about some of the criticism that the couple have faced through making these comments. Uh, Megan actually responded to some of her uh, the earlier criticism to what uh, her comments on encouraging those in the US to vote in the upcoming election. Uh, there has been much commentary about it, certainly over here, uh, which I always find interesting because we obviously have no role in the US election whatsoever. Um, but Meghan, speaking at Fortune's Most Powerful Women Summit, said that uh, if you listen to what she says, uh, her words aren't actually that controversial at all. It's about being authentic. And if you look back at anything that I've said, it's really interesting because it often ends up, what ends up being inflammatory, it seems, is people's interpretation of it. But if you listen to what I actually say, it's not controversial. 
and um, and actually some of it is is reactive to things that just haven't happened, which is in some ways, I think you have to have a sense of humor about it, even though there is quite a bit of gravity and there can be a lot of danger in a misinterpretation of something that was never there to begin with. This was all part of a short appearance for the Fortune event where she was speaking with the Fortune editor, Ellen McGirt, um, generally about how society can work together to revamp the digital world. It's something that the Archwell Foundation that Harry and Meghan are launching either at the end of this year or the beginning of next year, will really focus on uh, creating healthy, positive, humane digital communities online uh, for our own well-being and for the future of our world. At the end of her session, she shared a quote from the artist Georgia O'Keeffe, uh, kind of uh, sort of referring to her own experiences of being a public figure, existing in this very strange social media age. Um, she said that she had the quote up in her room many moons ago, but she says it resonates her, with her now more than ever when you see the vitriol and noise that's out there in the world. And the quote is, I've already settled it for myself, so flattery and criticism go down the same drain, and I am quite free. Oh, yes. I like that. Yeah. One, one, one to remember, I think, when, when we open it our is. Twitter apps on our phones. It's kind of, yeah, it's good advice for everyone. You know, you'll, you'll have people that love you and people that hate you, whether it be in real life or on social media. But it's, at the end of the day, it's kind of how, you know, you've settled it with yourself. Exactly. How do you, what's, what would you consider your relationship with this digital space like? Do you, are you able to keep it separate from your own life or is it sort of part of it? Well, I would say I feel very grateful that I did not have social media when I was a teenager because I think, you know, you're not fully developed yet and you haven't learned enough about yourself to sort of process those kinds of things. I feel for like kids growing up these days with Instagram and Twitter and, and TikTok and everything. I mean, that's just a lot to grow up with. Um, I think it's much easier, hopefully, as an adult and kind of always remember, similar to that quote, actually, that you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to who you are as a person and, and how you feel about yourself. And if you're confident with how you're living, then hopefully you can ignore the rest. Now, honestly, sometimes easier said than done. Let's be real. And not <laughs> sometimes words can hurt. But, you know, if you keep reminding yourself it's, it's not what about people are typing online. It's about the kind of life you live. Hopefully that makes a difference. Well, I think on that note, I don't know where to go from there. What great words from Maggie. <laughs> I miss the days of MySpace. It was a more innocent. <laughs> oh my God! When I have made your six, is that how many there were? Aren't there six? It was like six friends or something. Well, you could. There was actually a hack that I had that you could change it to add more because it was no. very stressful. Because you add had too many friends or whatever it was. Yeah. Well, no. <laughs> and do you remember everyone had sort of the same friends? There was always the same few famous sort of social media like everyone stars. Everyone was friends with Tom, right? Wasn't Tom the creator? Tom was the OG. We are going off on a tangent at the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> no, how we got on Tom on MySpace. Well, okay. Back to the modern day. If you guys want to reach out to us, you can find Maggie at Maggie Ruley on Twitter and myself at Scoby. Just use the hashtag the AirPod for any messages related to the show so we can find them easily. Uh, thank you again to everyone listening. Thanks to the guys in New York, Leighton Schneider, Anthony Alley, and Mike Dabrowski for keeping the show ticking. Maggie, it's a pleasure as always. Always fun to catch up. Have a good one, everyone. <laughs> Take care, everyone.